to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at the case of KV and Secretary of State for the Home Department, and the citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 10. This week's case allows us to look at the state of the law as it relates to asylum seekers coming to the UK. It is a fairly extreme example, and so I will do my best to tone down the descriptions of physical violence and torture, but at least from this point you have been warned. The man at the heart of this case is KV, who comes from Sri Lanka and is from the Tamil ethnic minority. The relationship between the Tamils and the national government in Sri Lanka is strained to say the least. A group called the LTTE, but more commonly referred to as the Tamil Tigers, had wanted to assert their independence and fought a long civil war against the military that only comes to an end in 2009 after the president, Mahinda Rajapaksa, upped the campaign in the north of the country and eventually achieved a total military victory. However, throughout the conflict, and especially during the final stages, there were serious questions raised about the tactics used on both sides including multiple accusations against the government of genocide with respect to the Tamil population. It is against this background that KV arrived in the UK. He claimed that while he was not officially a member of the Tamil Tigers, he had helped the group during the war by melting gold down. This had put something of a target on his back and he was eventually captured by the Sri Lankan government who apparently wanted to know where exactly the gold was hidden. In order to extract that information, KV claims that he was tortured by officials who applied hot metal rods to his arm, rendering him unconscious. Once he was unconscious, the rods were applied to his back instead, and so all of this maltreatment left a set of nasty scars. The issue in this case is that when KV came to the UK and claimed asylum, the Home Office argued that while the scars were caused by hot metal rods, the so-called torture happened with the consent of KV. In other words, he had asked someone to deliberately apply the rods to his body, possibly to aid any future asylum claim. The case eventually went before the upper tribunal, who heard expert medical evidence. According to the doctor, his own clinical conclusions were, quote, highly consistent, end quote, with the account given by KV, and there was a good basis for ignoring the claims by the Home Office. In spite of this, the upper tribunal found the overall evidence presented on behalf of KV to be unconvincing, and their own conclusion was that firstly the precise edges of the scarring meant it was clinically unlikely that the injuries were inflicted while KV was conscious, and secondly that it is clinically unlikely that a person who was unconscious could remain so in the face of a hot rod being applied to an arm or the back. The interesting thing to jump in and note at this point is that the tribunal here is making a decision on medical grounds that contradicts the expert medical evidence in the case. This was then upheld in the Court of Appeal by a majority who noted that while medical evidence does have to be given serious weight, the decision by the tribunal was not irrational or perverse in the circumstances, and the judge was free to come to their own conclusion. Furthermore, it was also noted that it was beyond the remit of the doctor to state that his own findings were highly consistent with oral accounts given by KV. With this question representing an interesting point of law, it was passed to the Supreme Court for the justices there to give a final decision. 
It was noted, first of all, that there is some guidance from international law on this issue, in particular from the Manual on the Effective Investigation and Documentation of Torture under the Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. That manual makes it clear that for each lesion, a medical expert should form a view as to whether it is generally consistent with the stated cause of the lesion given by the patient. And so Dr Zapata Bravo was well within his rights to form such a conclusion about the injuries sustained by KV. However, that is of course not the end of the case, and it was noted, in line with the Court of Appeal decision, that it is ultimately up to the tribunal to make a decision based on all of the available evidence, and not to lean on medical evidence as simply a substitute for its own judgment. That means we now need to move on and dig into that judgment by the tribunal. The first issue that was identified by Lord Justice Elias in his dissenting judgment from the Court of Appeal, as well as by Lord Wilson in his lead judgment in the Supreme Court, was that in its summing up, the tribunal had made a factual error by stating that the precise scarring was on both KV's arm and back, when it was only on his back. This fits in more with KV's statement that he was conscious when the rods were applied to his arm, but not conscious when they were applied to his back. Following on from this, it means that it was a fundamental misunderstanding that formed the basis for the conclusion drawn by the tribunal. So, does that mean the decision can be overturned? Well, remember, we do have to consider the evidence as a whole, and so if the tribunal found KV's oral testimony unconvincing, then they did the right thing by considering that it was possible KV consented to his own mistreatment. The problem was that while they gave close examination to the suggestion that KV was actually tortured, once they had dismissed this, the tribunal automatically assumed that the injuries therefore must have been consented to. In fact, any sort of self-caused injury amongst asylum seekers is extraordinarily rare from a statistical point of view, and in this case the sort of deep and extensive scarring we are talking about would require an almost unbelievable tolerance for pain or the assistance of someone with medical expertise and access to anaesthetic. These are the sorts of points that the tribunal took for granted, and so the Supreme Court unanimously decided to allow the appeal, and so fresh consideration will be given to KV's claim in the upper tribunal. In terms of our own analysis of this case, I think the starting point has to be that only in rare situations should an appeal court overturn the decision of a lower court, especially when it is based on the facts of the case. Lower courts are much closer to the substantive evidence and therefore able to make more informed decisions. With that in mind, one can have a certain amount of sympathy for the majority decision in the Court of Appeal, but at the same time, we have to be careful not to take this principle too far. In this case, the tribunal's actual understanding of the facts was simply wrong, and that is obviously going to infect the rest of the decision-making process. Now, no judge is perfect, and it may be that minor errors do not really sway things one way or another. But the mistake here is about the nature of KV's injuries, where the case turns on how those injuries were sustained. The misunderstanding was literally fundamental, and it is slightly worrying that the Court of Appeal did not pick this up themselves. Meanwhile, the clarification from the Supreme Court on how medical evidence should be treated is useful and instructive. Experts are not separate from the cases that they are involved in, and the idea that they should not be allowed to form a view about how the clinical evidence stacks up against the testimony of the patient is ridiculous, and would only serve to make the job of any judge much harder. Their opinion is invaluable, 
and without it the legal profession would be feeling around in the dark in so many cases. On the other hand, that does not mean that their word must be taken as gospel. As we noted earlier, it is up to a judge to consider the evidence as a whole, and that may include differing clinical evidence or, as in this case, other possible causes of the harm. In sum, this decision reminds us that clinical evidence is weighty and persuasive, but in exceptional circumstances may not match the final decision of the court or tribunal. Finally, before we finish, it is worth passing comment on the case overall. It probably says a lot about our country that our government would choose to fly in the face of all empirical evidence and pursue a case arguing that an asylum seeker deliberately tortured himself to get into the country. The policy of the Home Office has created an environment that is completely dehumanising in the sense that people are no longer evaluated based on who they are or even where they come from, but rather just simply to keep as many people out as possible. The island mentality that has grown up in recent years has given a clear voice in cases like this, and if more people knew of the practical examples like this one, then they might begin to reconsider their staunchly held views. Even on a basic level, the amount of taxpayer money spent on taking this case to the Supreme Court is sickening, and would have been much better spent making a substantive difference to people's lives, instead of waging a battle based on bigotry and mistrust. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provides the theme music. Before I go, just a quick reminder that you can check out the website at uklawweekly.com for the podcast, and you find there a whole host of the previous episodes, including all of the cases that we've covered over the past 150 or so episodes I think we're up to now. And you can also find all of my video tutorials as well, including a full copy of the recent course on family law. So make sure to go there and check it out. I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!